We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we are in, uh, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. That's what we do. That's our big thing. And so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And, and as a, uh, I need to give some, give some context before we get started. I know we have folks in here, uh, all, all walks of life. Uh, this is uh, going to be um, one of these sermons where uh, I will be sure to be misunderstood first. Uh, some of you will hear what I'm saying and uh, totally shut down real quick. Uh, additionally, um, this is, the context is sexual morality. That's in the Bible. That's where we're at. Uh, if you have never read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you don't know the context of the church in Corinth. They were a wild and out church. They were sexually deviant and wild. And so I know uh, there's folks in here um, who might have kids. Uh, so if that's going to be offensive to you, I'm going to do my best uh, to not be, I'm not, well, not going to be crass at all. I'm not going to be rude. I'm not going to be explicit. But I am going to speak frankly about the context of our day and our age and in our culture and our context. I'll tell you this to start off. Uh, uh, one in four girls uh, and one in six boys will be sexually abused before they turn 18. Uh, that's, just, that's just what it is. And one in three women and one in six men uh, will experience some form of sexual violence uh, in their life. Additionally, um, uh, the... Uh, we see that uh, 90% of children, 90% of children between the ages of 8 and 16 have viewed internet pornography, in most cases unintentional. So if you, ha- if you aren't aware of these things and you're not talking to your children about those things, that's, that's, I, I'm, I'm the one that may take the shots today and I'm fine with that. But they, we live in a context and a culture where uh, if you're not talking to them about it, someone else is. And so that's an intro to a sermon for you, uh, if I've ever, you've ever seen one. Um, and so uh, I love you. I, I, Paul loves you. He's the author of this book. He's writing to a church that is, that is, that is a small congregation, about 50 to 80 people. Um, they're, they're in a progressive city. They're in a progressive day and age, uh, similar to ours. Like we live in a world that, uh, uh, that where affirmation is the highest form of love in our nation. To affirm someone is the highest form of love in our nation. And tolerance in our nation has been actually redefined as approval. Uh, instead of you know, being able to agree to disagree, tolerance has now been uh, couched in terms like celebrate, affirm, uh, which makes the biblical mandate and the refrain from Genesis to Revelation of repentance being falling on, on pretty much deaf ears uh, in our context and our culture today. And so when you look at the prophets of old, they preached repentance. When you, pr- when you look at John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest man who ever lived, uh, he preached repentance. Jesus' first sermon, repentance. Uh, in Acts, uh, the, the first sermon of the apostles, repentance. It's repentance, repentance, repentance. Um, and so today we believe in tolerance and affirmation. We, we, uh, repentance is obsolete in our day and age. And so um, that's where when we're speaking into that context. I understand where you're coming from. I understand that, that or I also need you to understand that that is the context of the Corinthian church. So I'm going to answer two questions uh, along the way and on our journey through our text today is, what is sexual sin? And number two, how should the church respond? How should the church respond, especially when the church has been uh, like Corinth? They've been informed so much by the culture that they live in that they're thinking and behaving like the non-Christian culture around them. Not much different than uh, 2023 American church. So point number one, if you're, if you're still with me, uh, tolerance of what God forbids is evil. 
Here we go. Uh, to tolerate, uh, this is literally me, this is what it means. To tolerate what God forbids is evil both for the Christian and the non-Christian. I need you to understand, like, God sets the standard of what's good. God gets the st- sets the standard uh, of what's right. God sets the standards. Uh, and, and, but, so evil is evil, is evil is evil. What God says is evil is evil. Now, to uh, affirm or to tolerate what God forbids is, is evil is, 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 is evil in and of itself. And so the Apostle Paul, I need you to see here, he's addressing the church. I need you to see this. The context he's talking to this being spread in the context of the church. He's not, he's not simply taking a shot at the culture. He's looking inwardly at the, at the church and the Christians in the church. And so let's look at what is going on in the church. And so he says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality, which is this Greek word porneia, which means any type of sexual sin, which we'll answer here in a moment, among you. And it's a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. If, if you have discerning ears, you know what he's saying. He's, he's with his father's wife. And you are arrogant, which they're proud. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. That's our first point. Tolerance of what God forbids is evil. And so what is this porneia? What, what is this sexual immorality that they're speaking to here? Uh, he's speaking to one specific thing, but this, this word here, this Greek word porneia, is a junk drawer term for all sexuality. All, I mean, sorry, all sexual sin. So sex is a good thing. Uh, it's a gift from God to be enjoyed in the context of covenant marriage. That's what it is. That's what God uh, intended it to be. And so that is good. That's great. That's awesome. That's glorifying to God. That's what it's intended to be. Uh, enjoyed as a gift in the context of marriage. Anything outside of marriage, sex outside of marriage in any way, shape, or form is a sin. That includes sexual identities and being acted upon, homosexuality, bisexuality, transsexuality, fornications. You're just friends with one another and you all have benefits, also known as adultery or you know, uh, a man with another man's wife uh, is, is adultery, swinging, prostitution, incest, rape, polygamy, sinful lust, pornography, and a pedophilia. Many of those are on our new flag in our country that we call uh, human rights. So if you're, not, if you're not awake, you're not paying attention, some of you will be real offended by some of those things I just said, like, you just listed some really, you know, you said that from the pulpit. Yeah, well, we have a whole month dedicated to it in our nation. If you're not paying attention, someone else has the microphone. And by God's grace, I hope to speak through that noise. And by the power of the Spirit, we, we, we address the heart. Furthermore, any, any sex act with anyone other than your spouse is a sin, period. That's what the word means. And that's why it's a junk drawer term that means anything. That, that, that is outside the context of one man, one woman is called porneia or sexual morality here in this context. That's what he's saying. And so we live in a highly sexualized, sex-driven culture where we have, even like I said just a moment ago, we have a month dedicated to celebrating sexual perversion. 
If you, if you, if you feel like, man, I, and I've had this, and I've, I speak on this manner often, and I hear people after service that come to you and think, man, you're, you're just really saying some things that are kind of offensive, and, and you, know, you know, you shouldn't be saying those from the pulpit. I need you to understand we have a na- in our nation you should be outraged if you're outraged by me, uh, that, that where we celebrate a whole month dedicated to sex. A whole month. We got banners, bumper stickers. We got it all. We got shows for kids, drag shows. Don't look that up online either. I've, we like race cars. You look up drag racing, it's, it can go bad real quick. We did that. Just saying, it's out there. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. When's the last time you turned on, watched a TV show? When's the last time you listened to a song? When's the last time you looked at an advertisement? It is everywhere. And some of you will think that it just started happening because you've been asleep for the past decade. It's been going on for years and years and years and years. The annual porn revenues of our nation going back all the way to 2006 is even higher now. In the United States alone, it was a $13 billion, $13 billion industry. The gross revenue combined, uh, or, or sorry, was more than the N- M- NBA, National Basketball Association, MLB, ma- the Major League Baseball, and the uh, uh, NBA, or NFL, the National Football League. More revenue made in the porn industry by those three combined. And guess what? Most of it's free out there. Follow the money. It's out there. Every day, 2.5 million pornographic emails are sent. Said this already, but 90, 90% of children between, and this grieves me, and it should grieve you, 90% of children between the ages of 8 and 16 will have viewed internet pornography most cases unintentionally. My son just turned nine yesterday. The largest consumer category for internet pornography are boys 12 to 17. The average age of the first time sexual intercourse is 16. Guess when the most popular day of the week is for downloading pornography? Sunday. Sunday. The day that the church of Jesus Christ is set aside to worship him, the other counterfeit God, Satan, and his demons have found another way to worship, and it's through virtual, digital screens. This is, I'm not, I'm writing the, I'm not writing the news, I'm just telling you the news. I'm just telling you how it is. And sadly, we, because in our day and age, we worship, we worship at the idols and the temples that the, that the Corinthians did. They had Aphrodite. We have the internet. Uh, and sadly, we've allowed this in our nation, and therefore we're now sacrificing our women and children to the altar of this God, where sexual abuse is rampant. One in three women and one in six men will, will experience some sort of sexual violence. This over-sexualized culture. Many of you, that's your story. That's your experience. You, you're like, you, you're like I, I, I'm one of them. And there's healing, and there's mercy, and there's grace, and there's forgiveness, and there's transformation in Jesus Christ. But the reality is the Satan and demons want you to keep that silent, want to keep that hidden. Don't talk about it. Let's not address it. Let's just be silent and, and ruin your life. Ruin your marriage. Ruin your families. Satan wants you to worship another God that's not Jesus. And if he wins, he will destroy you destroy your family. He'll destroy this church. 
The same issue is going on in Corinth as it is in our, in our day. And Paul's addressing it head on. And he calls it specifically what it is. He says, a church member is sleeping around with his dad's wife. You're like, who, who, who's, who's the dad's wife? Yeah, the person you're thinking, that's the one. It may not be his biological mother. We don't know. And it, perhaps many scholars would say it could not be his biological mother because if not, he would have said so explicitly. Here's the point. It was weird. It was weird. Totally weird. And apparently the Corinthians, the, the tolerant, diverse, uh, you know, affirming, you know, sinful culture that they lived in, they didn't even think that was cool. They said they don't even tolerate that. They were intolerant about that sexual deviance. What does that tell you about our day and age where we live? We've gone way down the line. We are way more perverted. We're way more headed to, in a direction that may lead to uh, consequences that in your lifetime and my lifetime may not be able to be undone. So apparently the Corinthians were like, this kind of flagrant sin, we, they don't even, the pagans don't even do this. But in the church, they're celebrating it. In the church, they're, 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 they're watching it happen. Now, in our day, uh, you know, we've, we've become so perverted in many ways that, that we, we just use terms like, well, if they're two consenting adults, then it's okay. It's just we should affirm someone's desires. If they're consenting adults, love who you want. Everyone, should, and I've heard this, I've heard this said by children. Shouldn't everyone just be able to love who they want to love? Sounds great, right? Sounds great. What if you want to love Satan and demons? You're like, that's not that great. Adam and Eve, when, when they ate the fruit, you know, what if we just do what our, our eyes desire, our heart longs for? It'll satisfy us give, and just eat. See, the serpent's tactic is the same. It's to lie, deceive, and to trick and then to trap, to, and to enslave. And so I need you to see this too. In our day and age, again, as we've, as we've gone down the, the trail of perversion, back in 2017, so we're now in 2023, back in 2017, the words mom, stepmom, and stepsisters topped the charge for the most searched terms on Pornhub. I was searching them on there. It was that that's what the stats, when you do, do your study, that's what those were. The incest was what we were looking for as a nation. They're doing this in Corinth openly, publicly, proudly, in the church. And now, because of the way someone might view us or what people might see, we can, we can hide it. We can be virtual. We can come to church acting like one way and living a secret life. So many Christians are doing this. They're living the secret life because we have taken the counterfeit of, of our enemy and we've, and we've done what would be forbidden by God in public and now we've made it private. They were doing it publicly. We now have removed the accountability. We've removed our ability to be, uh, to be influenced by God's word and his people. And Paul says, in this church in Corinth, this stuff's going on. He says, you are proud. You're arrogant, he says. You're arrogant with the exclamation mark. I didn't even use exclamation mark. He's, he's, he's yelling. 
You're arrogant. You have your bumper stickers at your church. You go in the parking lot, you see them. You see your flags. You see your parades. The people, it must have been in Corinth, in massive sin themselves because they were tolerating it. And this is what happens. When you have your own secret sin, you don't ever call out the sin of other people. They're afraid to. They find out who I am. I mean, they know who I am. You know, if they, they hear me say that, then I mean... You know, they're going to call me a hypocrite. They're going to call me a hypocrite. So they, they stayed silent. Then they moved from just staying silent, and then they, they were like, oh, well, you know, we're tolerant, we're diverse, you know, you know uh, his, they're two consenting adults. You know, I know it's kind of weird, but, you know, we're, we love love. We love, we love, we, 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 we love, we're tolerant, we're diverse. We're not hypocrites, we're proud of him. And, and, and he can have pride for my sin. And, and we can just be open-minded and, and tolerant Christians. Diverse, affirming Christians. That's literally what they're doing. And he says that they should have been filled with grief. Ought you not rather mourn? You threw a party, you should have thrown a funeral. You, you had a parade and you had smiles and you, you cheered one another on and you had pride. You should have mourned. Should have thrown a funeral. Should have dressed in black, been weeping, and just praying, just asking God to do something because of this type of deviance is being celebrated in the church. Then you should have been just mourning, upset, grieved, angry. But rather, what they do? They flaunted it, proud, arrogant. And he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. You should have removed this. This is not acceptable. And so here's the reality. In this first point, we, you will either be a slave to your lust or your Lord. You'll be a slave to your lust or your Lord. And so when we tolerate what God call, what forbids, that is an act of treason. That is evil. And so... How should we respond? How should, we re how should have the church responded? Paul goes on to say this. Next point. Church discipline is difficult but needed. So there should have had some sort of disciplinary action. He says, for though I am absent from the body, I'm present in spirit as if present. He says, I'm not there with you, but I'm right. You, it better, you should just act like I'm already here. He says, I have pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He's like, I've already judged the guy. And here's the thing. We live in a day and age where you're like, oh, you can't speak into my life if you, you don't know me. You can't speak into my life if we're not in community. We don't, you, don't, you don't have a relationship with me. You don't understand my background. Yeah, I, he understands enough to know, like, there's the line. You crossed it. Any form of sexual immorality, any sex outside the context of biblical marriage is a sin. Don't need to know much more than that. Well, you don't understand my circumstances. Don't need to know. Don't need to know. He's like, I don't need to know how you got in this situation. We can come alongside you. We can help you. But you got to repent. You can't keep going down this path. And he says, I'm gonna, I can pronounce judgment on you. And the reason why he can do this is not because he's uh, greater than this guy. Or Paul even says that he's the chief of sinners later in other contexts. He says, I'm the worst sinner of them all. 
So he's not judging him in the sense of like, I'm better than you, or I've figured it all out. He's, he's judging him according to God's standard. The judgment that he is pronouncing is based, of all, based upon the standard of God, his word, his will, and his ways. And guess who he's judging? He's judging the church. He's not looking out at the culture and going, you know, you non-Christians, you know, you need to act like Christians even though you're not Christians. He's talking about people who claim to be Christians. That's who he's talking to here. Yes, they live in a world that's wildly different, but the church looks the exact same. He said the church should look different than the rest of Corinth, and they don't. In some ways, they're more perverted than the rest of Corinth. And he says, when you have assembled, verse 4, in the name of the Lord, my spirit is present with the, the power of the Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's talking about church discipline here. He's talking about the church coming together to discipline the deviant, the unrepentant, to, to, to push them toward the path of Christ and his righteousness. And if they don't repent, then and they get disciplined. And so what Paul is speaking here with spiritual authority, he's saying, don't wait till I get there. Y'all need to get this. This should already been done. But I'm writing to you because I'm coming. We talked about last week. He says, do you want me to come with the rod or with gentleness and grace? And so we talked about last week that uh, when you are repentant, when you confess your sin, when you willfully come forward and say, you know what? I'm wrong. I'm struggling. I need help. There's grace. But when you're deviant, unwilling to repent, unwilling to hear from God's people, unwilling to be accountable, unwilling to be in community, and when, when addressed, when spoken to, when, brought, when, when things like this are brought to mind, you keep saying, I don't want to hear you, I don't want to listen to you, I'm going to do what I want to do, I'm not going to be accountable, I'm going to keep being deviant. And this isn't just in sexual morality, this is in any way that God forbids. You just keep going down the corridor of rebellion, and you won't turn around even when confronted face to face, the rod comes out. So Paul's bringing out the rod here, the rod of discipline. And so, see, we, here's the reality in our church, or in, or in the New Testament, but also in our church. I want you to see this. Uh, Christians in the church, you will either be, repent, and as Martin Luther said in his first of 95 theses, all of Christian life is one of repentance. You shouldn't be scared of that word. It's a word that just means turn around and come back to Jesus. We should be constantly, daily, repenting, confessing our sin as we've been made aware, walking in, in Christ-likeness, reorienting ourselves to God's word, will, and ways. When we're aware of our sin, we run back to Jesus. That should be the norm of the Christian life. And when that doesn't happen, discipline is enacted. Discipline is enacted. So when we say at our church, our aim, one of our, our aim is to follow Jesus. The second aim is to then fight sin. Why? Because sin keeps us from following Jesus. We've got to fight it. Third thing is we've got to fulfill the mission of Jesus. So those that follow sin, fight sin, follow Jesus, fight sin, fulfill the mission. Those are the three things we're aiming to do. So we're aiming to follow Jesus. That would naturally mean when anything is deviating and causing us to stop following Jesus, we've got to fight it. Fight the sin in our own heart. Repent often. Confess regularly. Be open. Be honest. Be transparent in community. Love our spouse. Love our children. Be willing to be corrected. Obey Jesus. That's the big idea. Follow Jesus. Fight sin. And, we don't, and then we are, in doing so, we continue to fulfill the mission and tell other people 
about the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus. That's the job, and that's the refrain, that's the continual uh, pronouncement of the New Testament. And so when we don't do that, discipline is enacted. I need you to see this. Some of you only hear discipline in, in, in the terms of punishment. It's also a form of discipline that's called discipleship. That's where the word comes from. Kind of, you kind of see, the, see it there now? Uh, if you're going to be a disciple and you're not disciplined, you're not a disciple. We're told throughout the text, uh, Paul to Timothy, that we're to be disciplined for the purpose of godliness. We're to be trained in godliness. We're to be disciplined according to God's word, will, and ways. Trained in God's word, will, and ways. That means we are trained, as Jesus teaches us in the Great Commission, to obey or observe all, and all means all, that Christ has commanded until he returns. And then when, we return, when he returns, we'll be made perfect and whole, and then we'll continue to do his will forever. That's the, that's the plan. That's the grand plan. And so until then, we are to, to stay the course, be disciplined, to obey all that Christ command. So when we're, you're not willing to be self-disciplined yourself for the purpose of godliness, Others in the church have to step in and, and, and call and force discipline among you. This is, it's amazed me in my, our day and age that we have so many people who, who, I hear it a lot, and they're like, well, if someone just gets on me, you know, uh, think about your context and work. If, if I can just have a boss who's on me all the time, and they, they just tell me what I'm, what I'm doing wrong, and they're just always constantly on top of me, that I get a lot of work done. I get stuff done. This is why men join the military. This is why men join sports, because they're actually not disciplined themselves. They need someone to crack the whip so they can get stuff done. Some of you are like, oh, wow, that just, you just showcased my whole life, and now it makes sense. Like, when I'm at work and my boss is on me, I'm really productive. And when my wife's on me, I'm really productive. But, like, if I have to, you know, if I have my own, I just don't get anything done. That's why the car's still not done. That's why nothing's done. It's undone. See, we live in a world that, that, that has operated off the, the rod. And men only got things done when they had the rod. When the rod of discipline was upon them. Jesus has is, is called us to be disciplined and to discipline ourselves, a self-discipline for the purpose of godliness. The rod is not to, meant to be the norm. And some of you were, grew up in cultures and church cultures where the rod was the norm. So you, you, you hear discipline, you hear abuse. You hear all yelling, you hear all, like, I'm all on top of you. Like, it, it, that is not the, what he is saying. He's saying that the harsh discipline comes when the personal discipline has been rebelled against. The harsh discipline comes when it is the, the, the self-discipline has been forsaken. God is not looking around trying to smite people. God is not sending his church leaders to just crack the whip. He actually sets people free from slavery, like in Egypt when the Egyptian Pharaoh was doing such a thing. But God is, 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 not, is not saying that the, the whip has no value, the rod has no value. Even Jesus himself, when, uh, when, when seeing false worship going on in the temple, he braided a whip himself and hit people, drove them out of the temple. When sin was permeating and, and godlessness was permeating in the church, Old Testament church of, of God, Jesus himself also came in with a rod, with harsh discipline. But I need you to see the difference. Discipline is, is self-discipline is the normal everyday workings of a disciple. So therefore, when you're, you're aware of your sin, you, you, you've, you've fallen short, you, you've, you've done something wrong. Gentleness, grace from Jesus and the congregation should be afforded to you at that moment. Christians sometimes get that 
twisted. They're like, oh, that guy's, oh, he confessed his sin. Bam. We're going to just punch him in the gut. Guys are, are known for this. They, like, the dude confesses his sin, and they want to fight each other. Like, gentleness to the one who confesses their sin. But to the person who's deviant, running away, you may have to chase him down, tackle him, you know, restrain him, bring him back to Jesus. You don't punish, bring him back to Jesus. And so Matthew 18, it actually, uh, Jesus actually irons out and, and gives, gives, gives us a, a scope of what church discipline should look like. And, he, and, he, and um, it's Matthew 18, 15 through 20. It's not going to be on the screen, so just take note of it. Uh, you can go back and read it. I'm going to give you the highlights of it. It says, if someone sins against you, one-on-one, one person goes to the other person, hey, bro, you sinned against me, looking for repentance. That doesn't work. He says, bring, bring two, one or two more people. So witnesses, you go to that person. So now there's... Two to three versus one. Hey, hey, I, I, you've sinned against me, and he doesn't listen again. Well, then he says, bring the, get the church involved. And then if after all that, the church getting involved and trying to help counsel this case, he, the dude is still unrepentant, unwilling to repent of his sin. He says, then remove him from the church. So it's not just every issue needs to be taken to the church council to, to, for discipline. It should be Christian. So in Corinth, they should have looked at this dude and said, hey, bro, I see you in sin, I'm coming to you as a brother. Do you, let me appeal to you from the scriptures. This is what the word of God says. You call yourself brother. Uh, you're deviating from God's word will in a way. It's like I'm calling you to repentance. That should have happened. Well, when he didn't listen, the, the rest, two, two or three other guys should have come in, said the same thing to him. And when that didn't listen, he should have brought him to the church. Paul's saying this all should have happened before it ever got written to me. Y'all should have been able to handle it yourself. But since you didn't, I got to come and I got to hand this guy over to Satan is what he says. That's where we're at. They should have stepped in. And, and don't you see how much more loving it would have been for this church? Instead of doing their love wins dance and going, we're going to affirm you and everything, they're now, he finds himself deeper in sin. When we affirm what God forbids, people get deeper and deeper and deeper. It's harder to get out. Paul's having to write a letter. So he says, when he says hand over to Satan, what he is saying is this, is that Jesus is the king, he's the only king, there's one king, and that, his name's Jesus. There's another guy, Satan, who's a rebellious angel, and he is a, now a demonic counterfeit, and he has his own counterfeit kingdom. It's not a real kingdom, it's actually, it's false and fake, but he's masquerading as an angel of light, seeking to deceive the nations and, and the people, and hopefully, uh, if he can get some Christians to switch teams, he will. That's what we're told throughout the, the scriptures that Satan's job is. And so Jesus is king. Satan is the counterfeit king, the counterfeit kingdom. It's false. It's not real. And so what he is saying when he says he's going to hand him over to Satan, he's going to, this should be a harsh wake-up call to the Christian. Okay, bro, I'm going to hand you over to Satan. You know, the guy that we don't like, the false king, like, that should, who should have been going crazy. He's like, yeah, man, I know. Like, I'm already with him. Got the bumper sticker. Got the tattoos. I got it all. So what he is essentially saying when he, when he hands him over to Satan, it, this should be either a harsh wake-up call that calls the Christian to repentance or the guy is so deviant, so gone, we're saying, hey, Bray, go, go act like who you already are. Stop calling yourself Christian. Join the ranks of, of who you really want to worship. You're like, well, I don't really want to worship Satan. Well, you only have one option, Jesus or Satan. Those are options. Those are options because there's no other option. Satan will counterfeit it to say, oh, you're worshiping yourself or it's your... You're the true you or who God made you. No, false. Counterfeits. And so this, this, this idea of handing one over to Satan is like the, it's similar to the, that of the prodigal son. 
parable. Jesus tells the parable where there's this, this rebellious son who just wants to, who wishes his father to be dead, wants to take all of his inheritance and go spend it and do his own thing. He wants to while out, be his own man, be himself. And the father sends him out, lets him do it. Eventually, this man hits rock bottom. Upon hitting rock bottom, he realizes that it's not only, it would be better to be a slave in his father's house than to be so, quote, unquote, free. And this is what Paul's saying. Hand that dude over to Satan. Let him go do his thing. Let him hit rock bottom. And let him realize that true freedom is found in Christ. True freedom is found with God, his word, will, and ways, and with his people. Let him go. Hand him over to Satan. Let him go do his thing. He's not a Christian. Let him go act like let him go act like he's not a Christian because he's saying he is a Christian, but he's not acting like it. Just let him go. And let him hit rock bottom. And then when he does, when he comes back, we'll love, we'll love him. We'll, we'll love him even when he's gone. We'll like the prodigal, the father of the prodigal son, just be looking, waiting for him to return, praying for him, hoping he returns. You know, whenever we encounter him, hoping that he, he, he's, he's returning, coming back. Loving him, serving him, praying. Just, we just want you to, to come back home. And when he does, we throw a party. Throw a party. Joyfully embrace. And this is going to tick off some of the other Christians when that happens. But hey, nonetheless, that's the, that's the trajectory. That's what church discipline should look like. If, if necessary to kick, to remove this man, you remove him to the purpose that Lord willing and hope and prayers that the individual would come back. We're not the type of people our goal is to just kick people out and yeah, hand him over to Satan. Yeah. Go. He says he hands him over to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. By the time Jesus comes back, we hope he gets saved. Like, that's the goal. Just so, so now put yourself in a position where you understand that, that Christians in the church who are deviating from God's word, will, and ways are on the path of their own destruction. That, so you seek to, to encourage them to not follow the ways of the world, to not follow the patterns of the world, to, to stay obedient to Jesus and the scripture, to observe all that Christ commanded until Jesus returns. And you're just pleading with them. And then they go off and you're, like, and you're praying for them. They rebel. They don't repent. They just rebel, and you're praying for them. You're pleading for them. You're mourning, like he said. And then when they come back, by the grace of God, you, you rejoice in that day and are glad. But what usually happens, my experience in our day and age, when you enact some sort of discipline like this, what ends up happening is the, the individual will then go find another church. I've, I've had, I literally sat across the table from a guy who was talking about his deviance, he had not acted on it yet, but he's like, I'm thinking about it. He's like, should, should I like try this or this? Like real explicit about some things. And I was like, no, you're not married. Don't do that. He goes, well, here's my fear. Like I really want to go to this other church that just will tell me that it's okay. I'm afraid I'm going to do that. I'm like, well, if you're, don't. Month, month, year, eventually, not fighting sin, not following Jesus, not filling the mission in any way. I don't, want, I don't want the discipline anymore. Goes, finds another church, breaks up with his girlfriend, finds another person that's not a girl, and then, you know, does their thing. Finds the church that will affirm them. I tell you this because you can find a church, many, you can find more churches in our city who will affirm you and what God forbids than you will Find churches who will discipline you in godliness, period. You can, take that, you can take that statement to the bank. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. 
This is what happens. Corinth, they didn't have any other churches. They're like, go send that guy to Satan. Like, he, where else is he going to go? We only have one church here. Now they're like, we'll just go to the, the, the church down the road where they have, you know, and, and you, can, you know the church is at Old Firm, you know, because they wear it publicly. And so this is church discipline for the purpose of bringing this dude back into the fold, bringing him back to Jesus. Next he says that the church will become, and this is, this is to the, us now. That's what you do with the dude in sin. That's what church discipline looks like. And again, he's not just talking about sexual sin, but he is talking about sexual sin in this context. He's talking about anyone in any sin, any, any rebellious, unrepentant man or woman in the church. That's what he's speaking to. And next, he says, churches will become increasingly evil when they affirm what God forbids. So this may be a prophetic word to our country, our nation, and our, the churches in our land. He says, your boasting is not good. Your pride is not good. Your affirmation is not good. Do you not know, which means they should know, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What this is like yeast. Don't you know a little bit of yeast works its way through the entire lump of dough? He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you are, uh, as you are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and of evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's saying the church has adopted the posture, and this posture is that of pride. He says they're boasting. Look how tolerant we are. Look how affirming we are. Look, look at our, our, our love wins vernacular. Look at us. He says not good. Not good. Why? Because if sin isn't addressed, he says it will spread like, he, like yeast through the lump of dough. He says the, the, it will spread fast. And I know some of you don't even know what yeast is and what, you know, a lump of dough is. I get, you can go Google that later. But, hey, I promise you it spreads fast. Like it's faster than any airborne sickness that you may have heard of on the TV. I'm just saying, like, it's that fast. It's, it moves quick. It moves quick. And he's saying sin is like that. If you don't deal with it, it spreads it's going to infect the whole congregation. It, it, you, it, if you see it that way, this makes sense. So he's referring to this practice of God's Old Testament church, uh, uh, the, the, the people of God in, in ancient Israel. They, they had a practice of purifying their homes in preparation for the Passover feast. And so, see, the Passover feast was a feast that he's referring to here. Uh, and he says the Passover feast it was a feast that, that they remembered. And that was a feast where they remembered God passing over their sins, forgiving their sins, overlooking their sins. And so this, this goes back to God's people when they were enslaved in Egypt. And this is how we all were before we met Jesus. You were enslaved to your sin, enslaved to your sin, in bondage, in, in, in corruption, in, in enslavement to your lust, to your lies, to your life. You were enslaved to yourself and to your, the counterfeit uh, God, Satan, and demons. That's what you truly were. You were obedient to them and not to Jesus before Jesus saved you. That's our reality. We were slaves to sin, just like God's people were enslaved to Egypt. But God showed up through a prophet, through a man, and, and sent Moses in to tell the king, the counterfeit king, Pharaoh, to let my people go. And guess what he did? He refused. What did he do? He did not obey God, his word, will, or ways. What God did, because he was not obeying God in his word, he killed all of their firstborn children. 
because they would not listen. After nine other plagues that he sent trying to get his attention, saying, hey, listen to me, this discipline process was enacted, God himself to the, the, the counterfeit king Pharaoh. And in doing so, right before he set the people free, what God did was he had his people uh, uh, slaughter a lamb and then, and then take and then started this feast known as the Passover feast. And they took the blood and they put it over their doorposts from the lamb. And when God, the angel of death passed through the land, anyone who did not have the blood of the lamb over their doorpost, their firstborn son died. So all of Egypt, loud, weeping, mourning, death. And here's why. It's not because God was mean, not because God was wicked. God had nine other times commanded that Pharaoh let his people go. But in deviance and rebellion, discipline was enacted. And in doing so, God's people who had the blood of the lamb were set free. They had been, they, their sins had been looked over, passed over, God had, has, was going to deal with their sins, not with them personally, but through the Lamb. And in doing so, he sent them through, out of Egypt, through the, he parted the Red Sea into the wilderness on their way to their promised land. That's the story, and that's the story of us. We've been set free from slavery to sin. We've been sent through the, 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 the Red Sea or the waters of baptism into the wilderness awaiting God's promised land, the new heaven and the new earth where we're headed. That's the story of the Bible. That's our story. So you see the whole context here now. So now he's saying, that's, he, he's saying just as they prepared themselves, cleansed themselves, continue to celebrate this feast, remembering that it's God who passes over sins, it's God who forgiven, gives sins. He says, hear this. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. There is a lamb that was slain. His name is Jesus. He has been slain for you. He has died in your place for your sins. He had, the, the, God is able to pass over your sins because he's going to put your sins on the lamb, on his son, so that through faith we can be cleansed, cleansed, purified, set free, redeemed, headed to the new heaven, the new earth, and, and, and to be a new people, redeemed, cleansed. So when you look at the cross of Christ, Jesus goes willfully to the cross. He looks upon your sin. He looks upon your fallenness. He looks upon your pride and your affirmation and says, I want that man, I want that woman in my family. And he says, I'm going to deal with their sin. I'm going to pay for it with my life. And he does so. He becomes the Passover lamb. So that anyone who have the blood of Jesus would be forgiven. Their sins passed over. They would be cleansed. They would be made new. What sin? Sexual deviance? Absolutely. Murder? Yes. Any and all sins, the ones you think that are awful. Paul, who's writing this book, was a murderer first, and then he got the blood of Jesus and was cleansed from sin. He'll later say that some, many of you were sexually immoral, and now you're not because Jesus has saved you and cleansed you from your sin. Many of you were gossipers. You were liars. You were cheaters. You were fornicators. You were, you were a whole bunch of things, and then Jesus saved you, and he cleansed you. All he is calling them to do is to continue to live like the, the forgiven, redeemed, cleansed people. Not to clean themselves up by their own actions, their own works, but to continue to submit to the word of God, his word, his will, his ways. That's what he is saying. 
And so, on the cross, Jesus Christ, I need you to see this, church, on the cross, Jesus Christ put your sin to death. As the song we sing says, it was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Jesus has now made us holy and clean, and therefore, this is when we fight sin. We don't fight to earn God's love. We don't fight our sin. We don't repent of our sin to earn God's blessing. We don't to earn right standing with God. We fight it because Jesus, our, our Savior, our best friend, was killed because of our sin. The great English preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said it this way. He says, if Christ had died, has died for me, then I cannot trifle with the sin in which killed my best friend. Is Jesus your best friend? This is the question he's asking the church. Paul's like, you do love him. You're going to put a bumper sticker, a flag, a month to celebrate as a church the vile things, one of the many vile things, but a lot of them, that killed your best friend. Think about this. Like think about who is think about your spouse. You go murder them and then go, hey, I'm gonna have a t-shirt that says, hey, look, everyone, love me, celebrate me, let's throw a party because I murdered my spouse. Psychopath, prison. That's what should happen there. It's worse than that. Jesus perfect, your spouse not. Jesus your Lord. Jesus your God. Jesus, your king. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was, as the text says, crushed for our iniquities. It's a punishment that was on him that brought us peace. Tell your sins. Tell your lust. Tell your pride. Tell your temptations or, or what, what you're giving into in your temptations. T look at them and tell them, as you look at the cross, say, look what you did to my Savior, my friend, my Lord, my King. Look at Jesus from head to toe as the, the crown of thorns presses into his brow and as the, the blood drips from his face and as his hands have been stretched out and the nails are in his, in his arms and as he suffers to breathe and cannot, can barely gasp for air and before he says it is finished, he's just breathing his last breath, look upon the cross of Christ and tell your sin today, you did this to my friend. Why would I want to have anything to do with done. I want him. Praise be to God that Jesus didn't say dead. After three days, he rose victoriously, conquering Satan, the counterfeit king, sin, and our own hearts, and death, and offering us newness, cleansing, life. Some of you will say, well, Al, you, don't, you just don't know how hard it is. You just don't know how much I'm tempted. Maybe you're like, you don't know how constant sexual temptation is in our day. Maybe, maybe you're right. But I can tell you this, that Jesus experienced constant sexual temptation. Like, how do you know? Well, Hebrews 4.15 says he was, in, he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. You think Jesus, say, uh, uh, living in a Greco-Roman world wasn't sexually tempted? Well, if he wasn't, then Hebrews 4.15. 15 can't be true that he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. 
So he was sinless for you. So through faith in Jesus, you get his accounts. You get his forgiveness. You also get his righteousness. You get his sinlessness. But you also get his, 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 not just his saving nature, but his sympathy, where he can sympathize with you, as, as Hebrews 4.15 says. He can sympathize with you in your weakness. He understands what you're going through. I may not understand. Someone else may not understand what you're going through. But Jesus understands to the point of death and death on a cross. He wants to walk with you. He wants to transform you. He wants to change you. He wants to restore you. He wants to make you whole. Some of you may be saying, well, I'm just ashamed. I'm hiding. And I just, I just don't want anyone to know the sin I've committed or the sin committed against me. I'm just ashamed. You keep believing the lie that the, the more quiet you keep it, the, the better your life will be. It's a lie from the serpent that says stay in the dark when Jesus has come to the light and be healed. The enemy is lying to you, condemning you, shaming you night and day. Where Jesus has come to me, you'll have rest, you'll have peace for your soul. There will be no more condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. You'll get a new life, a new name, a new hope, a new future, and a new family. When you look at it this way, it's pretty simple. When, this, when the, the church of Corinth should be looking at this dude, pleading with him with all those things I just said, like, you have it all. Why are you squandering it? If your dad's wife, weirdo, we love you, but that is weird. We want to walk with you. We want to help you. We want to we help you fight your sin, fight your lust so that you can worship your Lord. Instead, they're like, nope, we're going to affirm you. We're going to affirm you. Which leads me to my last point, the great generational apostasy we find ourselves in right now, in our nation. This is what we're in the middle of. The word uh, apostasy means, it gets its origin from uh, a battle. It's a battle term where two, two armies are at war fighting one another, and then an apostate would be they join the other team and start shooting their own guys. If it's accidental, it's friendly fire. If it's joining the other ranks on purpose, it's apostasy. It's joining the counterfeit kingdom and then start shooting back at Jesus and his, the king's kids. We do this by editing in our day and age the word of God to fit our cultural worldview. We edit it. And then we tell, say, Christians who follow the word, will, and ways of God as prescribed in the scriptures, they're narrow-minded, they're bigoted. They're not sensitive they're not affirming. They have hate speech, which I'm sure I've, I've accumulated enough today to be misconstrued in that regard. He says it this way, how to, how to navigate a world that's apostatizing. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexual immoral people. And he says, not meaning at all the sexual moral of the world, or the greedy, so he's adding things, the greedy, the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with yourself with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or, or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. For what... For what uh, so, Sorry, verse 12, for what I have to do, what do I have to do in judging outsiders? Why, I'm not going to judge outsiders, but my job is, it's, it's not, is it not those inside the church 
whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So he's saying in closing, and he's, he's saying it this way. He's saying, he's talking, about Christ, he's, he's talking to the Christians here. He says, you should not associate with Christians who act like non-Christians in such deviant and perverted ways. What he is not saying is don't hang out with deviant non-Christians. And this is what, we get it twisted. And in the, in the world around us will we'll tell us this is what we do. And sometimes Christians are really guilty of it. Is we go, we go really heavy on the culture. Like they're, they've gone astray. They're deviant. They're wild. Look at their sexual immorality. Look at all the crazy stuff in the news. And while it's true, what's more of an eyesore is when churches are doing it. Deal with inside the church. Your jurisdiction, he says, first is inside the church. Who do you, you're going to be a you know, prophetic voice to the culture. First, be a prophetic voice inside your church. Cleanse the church. And so far too often, Christians tend to go really heavy on non-Christians, go really soft on Christians. Like, oh, well, he's a brother. He's in our church. And, you know, he sinned. And he's, it, it, He's like, if you bear the name brother and you're unrepentant in sexual morality, which means that someone has addressed you, so have the courage to address people in their deviance. Or they're greedy, they're swindlers, idolaters, they're just acting like the world in many ways. And they're in the church. You should purge them if they don't repent, which implies that you're, you're lovingly disciplining, going after them. You have some sort of discipleship process that you're walking. Like you, they, they don't have the self-discipline so you can step in and, and be, have a rod and, and, and correct. It implies all of that. And Jesus says it this way that he, he says, take the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in someone else's eye. He's not saying don't look at the speck in their eyes. He's like, first take the log out of your eye and say, hey, bro, I see the speck in your eye. Don't worry. I used to have a big old log in my eye. I know. It, it can hurt. It's really awful. But like that speck, it's going to ruin you. It's gonna, you're going to be blind if you, we don't deal with it. I know this because I, I don't have an eye because I had a log in it. It's kind of crazy. I'm coming to you because I love you and I care for you. That's what he's talking about. And so churches should, who don't, I'll put it, I'm, he's saying it this way, churches and Christians. Because in this day, they didn't have other churches. They had like Corinth, that was the only one in the city. So he's just talking about Christians. But I'm, I want us to see that churches and Christians who don't fight sin, repent of sin, and instead boast in, affirm sin and what God forbids are not our friends. They've taken up ranks with the enemy, and it's no longer friendly fire, but there is fire. It's the fire of apostasy. It's happening in droves in our nation right now. Why? Because it's so much easier and palatable to affirm what the culture says, let's say tethered to the word of God. Who wants to be labeled a bigot, narrow-minded? hate speech no one no one wants that I don't want I, I love these people I care about these people I see these non-Christians and they're and I see that the, they're in the you know the alphabet and I like I, I love them and you should you should have friends that are all over the you should be going after any and everyone who doesn't know Jesus and loving and serving and caring and in reaching them Paul saying like you should you should be associating with the non-Christian 
immoral people of the world. It's the Christians who call them, the people who call themselves Christians who are editing the word of God that you are to disassociate with. But the non-Christian world, you should be running to them, caring for them, loving them, serving them, welcoming them. It's what hospitality is, bringing them into your home, bringing them into your life, meeting, introducing them to your God, Jesus. That's who he hung around, sinners and outcasts, and the religious people hated it. He's saying you should be in the world, not of the world, but in the world. And then the Christians in the church that are acting like the world, they should be disciplined and purged if necessary. But what we have is is a generational apostasy where people are joining the other team, calling themselves Christians, and then lobbing back bombs at at faithful Bible-teaching Christians. And so there's an there's a, there's a unseen war between Satan and demons and, and, and the principalities of light, Jesus and angels, and it's manifesting in the real world, and we're the casualties. So gird your loins and prepare for war, knowing that Jesus, our good God and King, has conquered sin, Satan, death, and the grave, that he wins. So it's good news, even if you're on the front lines and there's casualties, that, that Jesus wins. Don't be afraid, don't be a coward, stand firm, lovingly serve people, particularly those outside the church, and then Christians act like Christians. Repent, fight sin, follow Jesus. I've had to disassociate with, with, with different pastors who won't do this. Just no longer friends. Best part is they're really good at their, their, their evangelism too. Because they keep coming, Al, oh, you need to edit this, you need to change this, you need to not preach this. I heard of this. I'm like, why are so many, why are you why do you care about me? What he's not saying in every possible circumstance, not to have fellowship with people. What he's saying when he says don't eat with them, he's saying don't act like we're on the same team. If someone pulls a gun on you, you know, you're like, hey, we're not on the same team. And so when friendly fire starts to happen, he's saying just you got to make it clear that we're not on the same team. Maybe it means you don't associate with them. I can tell you this, when pedophilia becomes legal in our nation, which it will, uh, uh, Lord willing it won't, but it's on the path, that's going to be, it's going to raise some uh, suspicions on who we can hang out with. Can we trust people? Or are they going to take us to the, 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 the which, which library are they going to take our, our babysitters going to take our kids to? Like, you're going to have to start thinking our association on what's safe and what's not. I get it. That may happen in our day and age. Just because someone calls themselves Christian doesn't make them safe. This is where we must be the type of church, and churches must hold fast to God's word, will, and ways, and and, and exercise self-discipline for the purpose of godliness every day as individual Christians and corporately the discipline of, of, of walking with people through repentance or disciplining disciplining them when they are deviant. For the sake of cities, families, nations, and the world. He says when it doesn't, when you don't do that, it spreads so fast that it corrupts everything. That's where we find ourselves. He says, should not Christians judge one another? By God's standards. See, the church's jurisdiction is restricted in judgment in this way to its members. He says, God will take care of the unbelievers. So he says, I, God takes care of the outsiders. And so guess what will happen when you enact? And this is a hard pill to swallow, I know. 
then we will struggle with this. When we, when we enact this, guess what will happen? You'll be labeled judgmental. And that's just the shot you're going to have to take. You'll be labeled narrow-minded. Friends, family will misunderstand you, as I'm sure I have been misunderstood today. The point in all this, see, some of you will hear this and go, well, we're, another sermon by another pastor just telling us what the church hates, what they're against. I need you to hear. I, I preach this passage because that's, that's what was the assignment for today. But I need you to understand, we are more for Jesus than we are for church discipline. Church discipline exists because we love Jesus. We want people to know Jesus. We want people to worship Jesus. We want people to serve Jesus. We want people to have their lives transformed by Jesus. Church discipline is like last resort when people who are calling themselves Christians won't worship and follow Jesus. So hear me. Don't hear the sermon and go, well, this is just a broadcasting of what another church, you're just sharing all the things they hate about the world. No, I'm trying to tell you the context we live in, the culture we live in, and I need you to see the, the goal and trajectory of this is that you would worship Jesus. You'd give your sin to Jesus. You'd give your life to Jesus. You'd give your family to Jesus. You'd give it all to Jesus. Let him cleanse you. Let him transform you. Let him make you new. Let him heal you. Let him help you. And then let him send you to go herald the news that our God saves. We live in a world, the world that I have described already, that is held captive, hell-bent on destruction. And if we Christians don't go by the power of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God to set captives free, they will remain captive. The question you have to ask yourself is who will you obey? Your Lord or your lust? The lust of your sexual deviance? The lust of your comfort to not preach the gospel? The lust of your own flesh to stay in your own comfort zones? To not follow Jesus? It's easy to not fight sin. It's easy to not continue in mission. Will you obey your Lord or will you obey your lust? We're going to respond and we're going to worship Jesus unapologetically. We're going to do so through the taking of communion. Then we're going we're to come together and we're going to sing as if Jesus is alive because he is. And then later we'll have an opportunity to respond and hearing more about what God is doing here at our church and how you can, you can follow in obedience and, and faith with him. So let me pray and then Pastor Alex will come lead us through communion. Lord Jesus, that was a lot. I ask that um, we would leave here with our eyes fixed on you, understanding that it is you we want to be like, you whom we love. May we look upon our sin and say, my sin killed my Savior. May I have nothing to do with my sin anymore. May I want to walk away from it. May we join community, join relationships in the church that, that help me follow you, Jesus. Help me fight sin. Help me continue to fulfill your mission. Thank you that there's more mercy and grace in you than sin in us. May we be a people who hold fast to your word, will, and ways and not, and not be, believe the lies of the enemy who, who, whose, whose voice is on loud in our culture. May we not affirm what is wicked, but hold fast to what is true. Help us, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.